So who in history is the worst Christmas villain other than Satan himself? Don't answer. Let me make some suggestions. Could it be this guy? Not him. No. <laughs> Switch it a little quicker next time, would you? <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. You did that on purpose, didn't you? You did. Anybody know who this is? Do you know his name? No one? Scut Farkas. That's right. From the movie Christmas Story. Maybe it's him. How about this guy? You probably know who he is. Who's that? Ebenezer Scrooge from the movie, from the story, Christmas Carol. How about these two guys? Probably a little bit more difficult to know their names. <laughs> Anybody know their names? Anyone? Marv and Harry. Good job. You get a free donut when this is over. <laughs> and they're from the movie Home Alone. Or how about this guy, which I've already heard his name, <laughs> the Grinch. Well, you know, as bad as these guys are, we might agree that the worst enemy of Christmas was the very first, really, and that is a guy named Herod, who was the reigning king over the Jews at the time that Christ was born. So uh, let's read a little bit about the kind of villain he was. It's Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time in which the star had first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Well, after this interview, the wise men went their way. The star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem, where they worshiped Jesus. And after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, I'm sure you know that in an attempt to kill Jesus, every male child two years old and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas was put to death. Now, though he was the most drastic villain, Herod was not the last villain who's tried to keep Christ out of Christmas and spoil Christmas for us. That's something that continues to this day, though I would say much more subtly. So let's look, about, look at some of these things, because what we're going to be talking about today is how to keep Christ in your Christmas. Uh, letter A attempts to take Christ out of Christmas. Number one, some try to take Christ out of Christmas by secularizing the season. Man, we see that all over the place, don't we? Where Christ is just removed. The name of Christ is removed from everything. Christmas has become more like uh, spring break than a religious holiday. Instead of calling it the Christmas holiday, it's called what? The winter holidays or the winter vacation. Uh, signs and stores and employees wish you a happy holidays now instead of Merry Christmas. And signs and, and, and snowmen, reindeer, Santa Claus dominate where once nativity saint scenes were on display. And number two, there are those who seek to commercialize Christmas. No, let's face it. Christmas is very good for our economy. It may be bad for your wallet, but it's good for the economy. Christmas sales account for 20% of department store sales for the entire year. 
Jewelry stores, that's 25% of their entire year's sales. So most stores actually count on Christmas to stay in business. Now listen to this. Just to put this in, into some perspective. We as, we as Americans spent last year a combined total of $450 billion on Christmas. We gave to charity $260 billion, just more than half. So we spent almost double on Christmas than we gave to charities and churches last year. Now, if that sounds bad to you, <laughs> listen to this. Somewhere in the neighborhood of half a billion dollars will be spent on 40 million pounds of fruitcake this year. <laughs> Did you hear me? Which I think works out to a total of 18 individual fruitcakes. Those dudes are dense, man. They are thick. Now, this despite the fact, listen... 47% of people surveyed said that if they got a fruitcake for Christmas, they'd throw it in the trash. And 11% said if they got a fruitcake for Christmas, they would re-gift it. Which is actually probably a good idea, because you may not know this. The shelf life of a fruitcake is 10 years. And if it's refrigerated, it's 25 years. <laughs> the shelf life of a car tire is only 6 years. Well, the good news is, if you get a fruitcake for Christmas, if your car tire is bad, your spare tire, just get out that fruitcake, man. You know, there are those who also seek to mythologize Christmas. And it's not just atheists and non-believers who do that. From now until Christmas Day, there will be churches all over the U.S. with pastors who have PhDs from liberal universities and seminaries who will teach their people that although Christmas is an inspiring story, it's not a true story. That God did not really become one of us. He did not become a baby. He was not born in Bethlehem, which means he did not walk on this earth, which means he was not crucified on the cross for our sins, which means he did not rise from the dead. Therefore, he could not and is not our Savior, which means that we are all still dead in our sins. And we're deserving of wrath and judgment and eternal damnation. We're all going to hell. Merry Christmas. Let's go buy some presents and drink wassail to celebrate. I mean, what's the point? Take Jesus off the side of your building and go somewhere else. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum is something that, that you may have faced, and, and I'm hearing this more and more. There are those who seek to take Christmas out of Christ. There are those who tell us that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas the way we do. In fact, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas at all. Don't you know that Christmas is celebrated during a pagan holiday? The, the, we don't even know the day that Christ was born. Christmas trees, lights, ornaments, all that kind of stuff, they all have pagan origins. A real Christian would not celebrate Christmas. Any of y'all heard that? What's well, circulating in the internet like crazy. So what do we do? What's the solution? To those who want to take Christmas out of Christ, to those who want to take Christ out of Christmas, 
Should we stop with the gifts and the trees and the decorations? Should we make Christmas into a somber holiday or not observe it at all? Or should we do as some suggest, and that is, instead of celebrating things like Christmas, should we celebrate the Jewish holidays and feasts? Well, let's look at letter B in keeping Christ in Christmas. Is there a right answer to whether or not we should celebrate Christmas and how we should celebrate Christmas? Is there a right answer? Yes and no. Yes and no. Actually, this is one of those gray areas that Scripture does not address, which means that we are free and responsible to pray, to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and then draw our own conclusion about what's best for us and for our families. You know, there was an issue in the early church that was causing great division. Uh, two things, really. One of them was whether it was okay for a Christian to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And the second issue was whether or not Christians should celebrate Jewish holidays. Because the Jewish believers were pressuring the Gentile Christians to celebrate all the Jewish holidays and feasts and to observe the Sabbath as strictly as they did. And this is the counsel that Paul gave to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it really applies to this issue that we're talking about with Christmas. But Paul writes this. He says, give a warm welcome to any brother who wants to join you, even though his faith is weak. Don't criticize him for having different ideas from yours about what is right and wrong. Now, what he's saying here is that there are some things. He's not saying that we shouldn't argue and stand firmly on some issues. But what he's saying is there are some things that we should argue about. There are some things we should stand strong on, like uh, the nature of God and who Jesus is and how we receive salvation in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But then there are also things that are not worth arguing about, that the Scripture does not address clearly or even at all. For instance, he says, don't argue with him about whether or not to eat meat that has been offered to idols. Don't, don't argue with him about that. You may believe there's no harm in this, but the faith of others is weaker. They think it is wrong. And they will go without any meat at all and eat vegetables rather than eat that kind of meat. Then he says, those who think it is all right to eat such meat must not look down on those who won't. And if you're one of those who won't, don't find fault with those who do. For God has accepted them to be his children. So who's right, Paul? Those who say it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols or those who say it's wrong? Who's right? The answer is, yes, they both are. Each is free to decide for themselves. Number four, they are God's servants, not yours. They are responsible to him, not to you. Let him tell them whether they are right or wrong. And God is able to make them do as they should. Some think that Christians should observe the Jewish holidays as special days to worship God. Others say it's wrong and foolish to go to all that trouble, for every day alike belongs to God. On questions of this kind, everyone must decide for himself. If you have or if you observe special days for worshiping the Lord because you desire to honor him, you're doing a good thing. But so is the person who eats meat that has been offered to idols. If he's thankful to the Lord for it, he's doing right. As is the person who won't touch such meat, he too is anxious to please the Lord and is thankful. In other words, Paul's saying here, he's saying, believe the best about each other. And don't judge a person harshly because he or she may disagree with you on these nine essential points. 
You know, don't think like, well, he's not a real Christian. He doesn't really love God or he wouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. He doesn't really love God or he wouldn't not celebrate the Passover. If he loved God, he wouldn't drink alcohol or watch the Simpsons or hate on the Cowboys or like cats. But I would never say those things because I am not a Pharisee much. Let me tell you what else the early church did. See if it doesn't make some sense in, in how we should handle Christmas in particular and uh, just life in general. You know, while society has tried to secularize the spiritual and de-Christianize the Christian, the, 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 what's Christian, what the church has always tried to do is just the opposite. The church has tried to, to overcome and counter that by spiritualizing the secular and Christianizing what is unchristian. To bring Christ into everyday life by infusing Christian meaning into secular and non-Christian symbols and practices. Let me give you some examples. How many of you believe that baptism is an important practice and symbol of the church? Yeah. Uh, Matthew 28, 19, one of the last commands that Jesus gave us, the Great Commission, in that he says, therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them. Every believer in Christ should be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, did you know that baptism was widely practiced by pagan religions long before Jesus gave this command? Long before John the Baptist came on the scene, baptism was practiced as a pagan ritual. So beginning with John the Baptist and Christ, the early church was not afraid to take a pagan ritual and give it new meaning and new significance and new power by making it into an expression of repentance and forgiveness and new life and faith in Christ. They Christianized a pagan ritual by making it a symbol pointing to Christ. Now, while in Athens... Paul was unafraid to point to a pagan altar that was dedicated to an unknown God and say to the people, you see that altar right there? You see the God that that represents, the unknown God? Well, that is actually the one true only God, and I'm going to tell you about him. His name is Jesus. Acts 17 Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you who that is. So he took a pagan altar and he sanctified it by making it a symbol pointing to Christ. So let me suggest with that background in mind, number one, it's an option to keep Christmas in Christ. And I think personally it's a good option and the right option, but everyone must decide for themselves. I want to make my case today, though. Yes, it is true. If you've been wondering, it is absolutely true that we celebrate Christmas during what used to be the Feast of Mithras, who was the Roman god of light. But that date was actually chosen on purpose to point those who were coming out of pagan backgrounds to Jesus 
as the true light of the world rather than Mithras. They Christianized a pagan holiday and pointed, it, pointed Christ, pointed to Christ. Which I personally think is genius. Now, for me personally, I, I don't care when we celebrate it. But remembering the birth of Christ, the day that God became one of us, it's a good thing. The day that God's son, Jesus, stepped out of heaven, left his throne in heaven, was born into human flesh as a child, as a baby, so that he could eventually suffer and die on the cross for my sins, rise from the dead and conquer death, and give me eternal life and make me into his own son, adopt me his own son. The day that Christ came to this earth to accomplish that is a big deal to me. How about you? I can't hear you. Is it a big deal? Why don't you holler, it's a big deal. Amen. I agree with you. Thanks. Personally, I think that kind of love and that kind of grace and that kind of good news is worth remembering and celebrating. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, read it out loud with me. Thank God for his son, his gift too wonderful for words. You know, I don't want anybody to celebrate Christmas that, that celebrates Christmas as a secular event or a myth to celebrate with greater joy than I do. I mean, as those who are who understand what this holiday means and have been touched and have been changed by the birth of Jesus Christ, our joy should be off the charts compared to the joy of others during this season, right? And listen, if you make sure to remember that, to, to, if you make room to remember that Christ came for you to make you his, there is no way anything will ever steal Christ out of your Christmas. No circumstances, no person, no feeling, nothing. Hey, but the argument is made. Isn't it better to not spend so much on ourselves and to give to the poor and to give more to the church during Christmas time? And you know, that's not a bad idea, especially the part about giving to the church. I think it's a great idea to give to the church. I don't know if you heard me, but I think it's a great idea to give to the church. I heard one amen. That's good. <laughs> one person that agrees. God does want us to remember the poor. But he also wants us to enjoy life. Is that news to you? Look at 1 Timothy 6.17. He, God, is the one who abundantly gives us everything that we have in order that we may give it all away, right? And live in poverty ourselves for the sake of others, right? No, what does it say? He says, he is the one who abundantly gives us everything we have in order that we may what? Enjoy it. Say it again. Enjoy it. Is that news to you? That God actually wants you to enjoy life and that he has given you, he has blessed you so that you might enjoy life? You know, one of the worst advertisements for Christ is joyless Christians. It really is. When we think suffering and misery are somehow more spiritual and pleasing to God than experiencing and enjoying blessing. 
Well, let me give you an awesome example of, of how much in favor God is of your enjoying life, of our enjoying life. Now, did you know that in the Old Testament law, God commanded that the Israelites give 10% back to him, give a tithe back to him. But not just one tithe. He commanded that they give three tithes. The first tithe was to be given to the priests for, for their benefit and also for the upkeep of the temple. The second tithe was collected every three years, and that was given to the poor. The third tithe was to be set aside every single year. For what purpose? Don't answer. I don't want you to steal my thunder if you know. Let's just read about it. Deuteronomy 14. Be sure to set apart a tenth of everything your fields produce each year. Grain, olive oil, fresh wine, livestock. Eat all of those things at the special place the Lord your God will choose. But suppose the place that the Lord will choose for his name is too far away from you. And suppose God has really blessed you and your tenth part is too heavy for you to carry. Then sell it for silver. Take the silver with you. Go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy anything you like. It could be cattle or sheep. It could be any kind of wine or fermented drink. I think that must be a misprint. Would you cross that out and put grape juice and Kool-Aid? Actually, no, let's don't drink Kool-Aid at church. That's not a good idea. In fact, it can be anything else you wish. Then you and your family can eat there in the sight of the Lord your God. And read the last part out loud with me. You can be filled with joy. Circle the words filled with joy. Now, that is a translation which is a huge understatement. This is the Hebrew word shemach. Say that with me. Shemach. One more time. Shemach. How many of you feel like you need a spittoon right now? As one article I read described it, Shemach is the language of celebration. It is the language of a party. It is being so filled with joy and excitement that one cannot sit still. That joy must be expressed through singing, dancing, jumping up and down, laughing, clapping, shouting, and being frisky. I somehow think that that being frisky term meant something different to him than it does to us. Or maybe not. But you know, you put all that together... And what you have is that everyone was encouraged. No, everyone was expected. No, everyone was commanded to save 10% of everything they earned. For what purpose? For a huge what? Party. For no other reason than to celebrate the goodness of God. To celebrate the fact that God is good. All the time. You know, how different is that from what many of us have been taught about God and his character? Many of us have taught that God is this killjoy that wants to spoil our fun. Not one who encourages and provides for our fun and enjoyment. What an awesome, incredible view of who our God really is, isn't it? You know, God commanded them to splurge to remember his goodness. And, and this is before the cradle and the cross of Christ. How much more we have to celebrate on this side of Christmas and Good Friday. How much more we know 
that God is good all the time. So while remembering the poor and being generous to the poor and the church, and while not abusing our credit cards, maybe it's okay for us to do that, to do the same. Maybe it's okay to throw a party and to celebrate the goodness of God that we see and experience in the birth of his son. One more time. God is good all the time. time. So number two, um, real quickly, I want to talk about this because we don't have much time. Keep Christ in Christmas by sanctifying, that is Christianizing the trappings of Christmas. So regardless of their origins, you might read all this stuff about their origins. It doesn't matter. Regardless of what others make of them, we can fill those traditions and symbols with Christian meaning. We can fill those traditions and those trappings we can, we can fill them with meaning that points us to Christ and what he's done for us. So let me quickly give you some suggestions. It's not exhaustive, of course, but just pick three. Number one, let the word holiday remind you that Christmas is a holy day. You know, chill. Just chill about the whole winter break thing and the happy holidays. Let people say whatever it is. Some of them are told they have to say those things. So just chill. Be nice. Be joyful. Be loving. That's what this season should produce in us is grace. Treat people with kindness no matter what they say, no matter what they don't say. After all, the word holiday literally means what? It means a holy day. And we know better than anyone else what makes Christmas a holy and a happy day. And and no one, by the way, is going to stop you from saying Merry Christmas to somebody else. Uh, Number two, let Christmas evergreens remind you of the eternal life that Christ came to give to us. 1 John 2, 25, read it out loud with me. Now this is the promise that he himself has promised us, eternal life. I think it's, sorry, this is how my mind works. I think it's kind of a sick thing that we cut down evergreen trees and kill them in order to celebrate eternal life. (laughs) Just saying, that's why I have an artificial tree. I was having a, a prayer time a couple of years ago in our old building, and uh, they had uh, decorated the, the stage real nicely with a nice, tall, beautiful tree. By the way, did, didn't the, the gals that decorated for Christmas, didn't they do a great job? And it looks beautiful. So anyways, I was, I was having my quiet time. I was having a worship time in the sanctuary, and, and my eyes just locked onto that tree, and it became the focus of my time of worship. Um, the shape of the tree caught my eye because of how it's shaped. It pointed me to God and to heaven, to the blessings that he's rained down upon me. A star on top of the tree reminded me of the star that guided the wise men to Jesus, which is, by the way, a symbol of the Holy Spirit who guides us today to Jesus. The lights on the tree reminded me that Christ was the light of the world. And he came to conquer the darkness. It's defeated. It's defeated because Christ came. The red ornaments that were on the tree reminded me of the blood of Christ that was shed for my forgiveness. To take the penalty for my sins. The uh, green tree itself, again, reminding me of the everlasting life that I possess because I belong to Christ. And then there were also gold ornaments on the tree. And those reminded me of how valuable I am to God and how Christmas shows me that, how valuable I am to him.
I want to encourage you to let everything point you to Christ during this season. And three, let Christmas gifts remind you of God's gift of grace. You know, the word grace literally means gift. That's what it means. You know, a gift is something which is given because of the kindness and the love and the generosity of the giver. It really has nothing to do with the person who receives the gift. It's not that we are deserving. So as you open each gift this year, and I encourage you to encourage your children to do the same, remember the gift that God gave you that started this whole thing. God gave you the best, most costly gift that he could give, the gift of his son. And not because you, not because I deserved it, because God is that kind of a God. He's that loving, he's that good. And he deserves to be praised. 2 Corinthians 9.15 again says, read it out loud with me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It was Christmas morning. The pastor of a small country church had come in early to get everything ready for Christmas. And as he was walking across the church lawn to the front doors of the church, he happened to notice that something was wrong on the nativity display that had been part of the church, a tradition of the church for a hundred years. And what he noticed was that Jesus was missing. And so he was distraught. He started looking everywhere. I couldn't find Jesus anywhere. And so he had to come to the conclusion that somebody had stolen Jesus. Now, as parishioners were coming in to celebrate, they too noticed and they were distraught. And when the pastor stood up to begin the service, he confessed that because Jesus was missing, it just didn't feel like Christmas. And he himself didn't feel much like worshiping. And so he suggested that they begin the day's worship by praying for the safe return of Christ. And as he stood and as he began to pray, after a little while, the back doors of the church swing open and a boy walks into the church pulling a little red wagon. And as the boy hears the prayer, he says, stop, 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 pastor. He says, pastor, you don't understand. For Christmas, I prayed to Jesus that he would give me a new little red wagon. And I promised him that if, it, if I got it, that he could have the first ride. <laughs> and so he pulled back the blanket on his wagon and he said, see, Christ isn't missing. He's with me. I love that last line of that story. Christ isn't missing. He's with me. Well, that's all you need to remember and believe to keep Christ in your Christmas and to be filled with joy. Christ isn't missing. Doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Doesn't matter what's going on. Christ isn't missing. He is with you. That's what Christmas shows us. Christ isn't missing. He's with me. Say that. Christ isn't missing. He's with me. Close your eyes and say it again and just really internalize and believe that. Christ isn't missing. He's with me. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us always. Jesus, we're so grateful that you've come, that you stepped out of heaven and you came to be one of us. You came 
to bear our sins upon yourself. To conquer death, rise from the dead. To give us eternal life, a home in your heaven, a relationship with you, your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy, no matter our circumstances, Lord. No matter what the world wants to do to try to crowd Christ out of Christmas, they can't do it. So God, just steady our hearts and our minds. Focus us. Focus us on you. On your love for us. How valuable we are to you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. In your name.